Take your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, let's start in verse number 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, keep your Bibles open. We're going to use them. And you might want to uh, make note for weeks to come, we're going to be using a lot of Scripture. We're going to be uh, tying the Bible together. I live and I love the book of Romans. Uh, Let me remind you, the book of Romans was penned over 250 years before there ever was a Catholic. Just so you know. Uh, Paul had spent two years, according to the book of Acts, in Rome. Now, when I say Rome, it's actually the city of Rome, not the country of Italy only. Just the city. Now... After Paul had left, now look at me for a second (laughs) before we get too far. Let me ask you a question. Is the book of Romans Paul's words or God's words? All right. So uh, don't get mad at me when I say this. So it doesn't matter then what in history is going on. That's why I differ with a lot of preachers saying, well, you have to have a historical view. No, the word of God applies today. It is the ever-living, abiding word of God that applies to us today. And if we only use the lessons of history, then we're studying what man did, which was sinful and wrong. I'll get back to that in a minute. The book of Romans is a book of doctrines. The book of Romans is a book of doctrines. Rome was the political center for the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire went from Spain and Portugal to the east, clear over to the eastern side, the, to the uh, eastern side of uh, India, and then it went all the way across North Africa and Saudi Arabia and that area. It was a huge empire. But Rome was the epicenter, that was the political capital. It would be like D.C. is to the United States of America. Yeah, and it wasn't any better back then than it is now. Uh, but if they, uh, but if anywhere needed good doctrine, Rome did. It was the political center. It was a very influential place to be. Now, remember, (laughs) Romans were not Jews. They were Gentiles. The Hebrew race 
was promised a blessing by God, not the Jewish religion, bless you. Too many times we want to interchange the word Hebrew and Jew. Please don't do that. Hebrew is the race. Jewish is the religion. There is a big difference. I'm an American, but I've seen how other Americans live and I'm not like them. Y'all know what I'm talking about? All right. So bless you again. Uh, Now, God wants everyone to have truth and to be doctrinally correct. God is not a respecter of persons. God wants every human to get the truth of the word of God and the gospel. Now, every doctrine for the gospel, for salvation, and the Christian life are found in the book of Romans. The book of Romans is power-packed. A lot of people just gloss over it, and they only want to teach it from a historical standpoint. I am not going to teach the book of Romans as we did the book of Acts and go chapter by chapter. You'll get lost. It'll get very confusing to you. We are going to teach the book of Romans topic by topic. (coughs) Now, (laughs) I'm going to throw a fit again. It is not a historical study. History is the study of man and the events on earth. Why do we want to limit God to what happened 2,000 years ago? Why do we want to limit the word of God and only base it on what happened 2,000 years ago in hopes that we might glean something from it? You see, history is the study of man. This is the word of God. Now, the first seven verses introduce the whole book of Romans to us. Let me, re- let me ask you again. Who wrote the book of Romans? God. So it's not Paul, correct? All right. So this is God introducing to us what God wants us to know, not Paul. Now, he will use Paul throughout this as the human penman and often as an illustration because the people in Rome knew Paul and God used Paul to send this copy of the book of Romans that we call the book of Romans back to the church in Rome that he had been in for two years. As far as history goes, that's all it was. By the way, it was not the Vatican. Catholic Church didn't start till 3.30 A.D. under Constantine. The book of Romans was written or penned around 60 A.D. That's roughly 270 years before there ever was a Catholic Church. Everybody doing okay? So I need you to understand this isn't talking about the Catholic Church. There was no such thing. Now, I believe, and I really think, if you can grasp the seven, first seven verses of the book of Romans, that you'll better understand the approach to the teaching and the reading and the study of the book of Romans. 
Romans is one book of the Bible that I believe every Christian should spend a lot of time in. I really do. <clears throat> if, if someone said you could only have one book of the Bible, I would pick the book of Romans. If I had to throw the rest of my Bible away and never read it again, I would choose the book of Romans. It is that important. Now, <laughs> it's going to help you personally, and it's going to help you help others to be saved or help people that you know who are saved that need help in their salvation and the doctrines of the Christian life. If you can get a hold of the truths found in the book of Romans, the whole Bible is going to come together for you. I really believe that. Now, let's jump into it. Number one, oh my soul, Romans is to help us understand the gospel. Look at Romans chapter 1 again, verse number 1. Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated, what's the next word? Oh, you all sounded like a bunch of tired Methodists. Separated what? Unto the gospel of God. Notice it doesn't say separated from. It says separated unto the gospel of God which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Note that term right there. The Holy Scriptures. The prophets. Anybody want to take a guess what part of the Bible that was? The Old Testament. Moses was a prophet. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Malachi. All of those are prophets. Everybody doing okay? God says those are the holy scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now I want you to notice something. Verse number two, look at it with me. It starts with a little half moon there and ends with another half moon, right? What's the, what, are, what are those two marks called? Parenthesis. Now, a parenthesis is this. If you took it out of there, what's before it and what's after it makes sense without it, correct? It's an insert to further explain what was before, but it's not necessarily attached to the sentence. It's just about the sentence before what's, what's happening here. So, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated into the gospel of God, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 2 is the parenthetical statement saying, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scripture. He's talking about the gospel and Jesus Christ. And that's what's prophesied in the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament. Now, the gospel was promised by faith in the Old Testament. I could take you back to Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15, and show you the gospel. Where God said that, that he would send his son and he would bruise the heel of 
the Savior, but Jesus would crush the head of the serpent. That's in reference to Calvary and the resurrection. That is the gospel, the shedding of the blood for the coats of skin. That is the gospel in the book of Genesis all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Now watch this. Here we go. (laughs) Let me show you the proof that there's no such thing as Old Testament is law and New Testament is grace. Look at verse number 5. By whom we have received, what? Grace. Grace and apostleship. For the obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Now look at me. There has never been anyone saved that did not get saved by grace through faith. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, we often call it faith's hall of fame. Now by faith, Abraham. By faith, Adam. By faith, Noah. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Oh, he was saved. Let me ask you a question. Abraham, Adam, Noah, and everybody before Moses came before the law. Yes, sir. So does that mean everybody up until the law came under Moses died and went to hell? Oh. So they were saved by faith. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Enos. By faith, all those that you go through there, you'll find out in Hebrews chapter 11... People are safe. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that, that faith, is not of yourselves, is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So God says here that the Old Testament is as much Holy Scripture as the New Testament. May I say something to you? Get out of your head that there's a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Bible is the Bible. Before Matthew, you had people looking ahead to Calvary. From Matthew on, you're looking at Calvary. And from the book of Acts on, you're looking back at Calvary. That was the only difference. For a small period of time while Jesus was here, they were looking at the Savior, but they were still waiting for Calvary. Everybody understand that? You only have a few chapters in the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about Calvary. Up until then, everybody was looking ahead to Calvary. You only have about eight or ten chapters in the entire Bible about the time when Jesus was during Calvary, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and while Jesus was here on earth. God didn't change his mind how people got saved. They got saved the same way. Now, (laughs) we may have people come here and they might use this term. Don't think they're heretics, but I'm going to teach you the right way. There's no such thing as the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Luke And the gospel of John. You'll never find that in the Bible. 
If you turn in your Bible, you go to the book of Matthew chapter 1. The only place you see the gospel according to St. Matthew is under the title of the book. It's not in the Bible. Because it starts, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Oh. Everybody doing all right? You can call it the Gospels. I don't. I call it Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are not four Gospels. There's one Gospel. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of God. There are not four separate Gospels. Well, one's point of view is this, and one's point of view is this, and one's point of view. God is the author. I don't care who the penman was, it doesn't change, it's the word of God. Everybody doing okay? Now, somebody might say, turn to the gospel of Matthew, or turn to the gospel of John. Now, uh, turn to Mark chapter 1. There's only one place where it's even slightly mentioned in the introduction of the what you would call, some would call the gospels. But let me show you what it says. If you have a uh, Oxford Bible, if you have a oh, uh, study Bible, at the top it'll say the gospel according to Mark. You ought to scratch that out and just put Mark. Because look at verse number one. The beginning of the gospel of whom? Oh, you all sound horrible tonight. <laughs> the beginning of the gospel of whom? Jesus Christ. The Son of God. Does it say the beginning of the gospel according to Mark? Mark's not even mentioned, is he? That is the only place in the entire first chapter of all four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that the word gospel is even given. So it's not the gospel according to Mark. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a big difference. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. 2nd Corinthians chapter 4. Say, preacher, are you on a hobby horse? No, I'm just getting started. This is just point number one. 2nd Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse number 1. And I've got to hurry here because I've got to get through this. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. But by manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of whom? Christ, who in the image of God should shine unto them. The gospel is about Jesus. It is not about man. The gospel is not according to man. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of God. Notice back in Romans chapter 1 again. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of 
God. Wow. Hmm. It didn't say the gospel of Paul. It didn't say the gospel of the Roman Holy Church or the Church of England or the Baptists. He didn't say anything about a denomination. Everybody doing all right? <laughs> While I was in Texas, somebody said, so you're a Baptist. I said, yes. He said, well, what would you be if you weren't Baptist? I said, ashamed. <laughs> they just shook their head. They didn't know how to take me. Now, wait a minute. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not the Gospels. It is the gospel of God. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, somebody's not a heretic if they use that term. But I don't, I don't think it's scriptural. I don't think it's scriptural to call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the gospels because the gospel and the word gospel is mentioned 96 times in the Bible all the way through to the book of Revelation. Everybody doing okay? It's mentioned 96 times. And it's mentioned more times outside of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John than in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So I think it's inappropriate to call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the Gospels. Now, I'm not going to crucify somebody. If somebody stands here and says that, I'm not going to say, sit down, you heretic. Nor should you. But just realize, I want you to understand the Bible according to the Bible. Okay, number two, Jesus is the key to the gospel. Look at verse number, Romans chapter one, verse number three. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And I'm gonna stop there for a moment, look at me. The biggest problem today is you can do anything you want unless you mention Jesus' name. I got an email from somebody a little contrary with me going to pray at a public meeting. They misquote scripture. <laughs> First of all, they say, what, preacher, what are you going to do? Answer not a fool according to their folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Say, did you shoot him an email back and correct him? No, that's what he wants. I got better things to do. Now, wait a minute. But it's not a matter of, you know what they're mad about? They're mad about that we're praying to the God of heaven, Jesus Christ. Amen. They're mad about the fact that it's a true and living God. Amen. They want to misquote him. They want to use small g on God on everything. By the way, same idiot that tried to uh, pray to Satan in front of Jennifer. Say, do these people bother you, preacher? No, bring them on. They don't know what they're tangling with tomorrow. <laughs> Notice, yes. <laughs> Notice, Mary is not mentioned in Romans chapter 1. <laughs> you can have beads, but uh, anyway. <laughs> You'll never see Mary's name mentioned with the gospel. I challenge you, go through every time the word gospel is used in the New Testament, 
and find out if Mary's mentioned at all with it. That means this, you can't pray to her and get closer to Jesus. This Jesus gives us, by the way, uh, he gives us the royal rights to the throne. The resurrection, by, by the way, Jesus' birth gave him the right to the throne of David. I'll show you that in a moment. The resurrection declared him to be the son of God. His birth gave him the right to the throne that after the seven-year tribulation and we come back and whip the snot out of everybody at the battle of Armageddon and Jesus sits in Jerusalem on the throne of David and we rule and reign with him for a thousand years, his virgin birth gives him that right. But his resurrection declared him to be the son of God. Listen to this. No one has ever been prophesied and told people that they were going to be killed and they were going to resurrect of their own will. Nowhere, anywhere in history other than Jesus Christ. Nowhere. By the way, there have been people who died and were raised from the dead. But they all died again. Jesus never died again. He forever liveth and intercedeth at the throne of God for you and me. So, Jesus has never died. He's still alive. Acts chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. We went through that before. We're not going to go there. But I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 9 for a moment. I'm not going to be able to do what I really wanted to do here, but I'm going to hop, skip, and jump a little bit. Hebrews chapter 9. I wanted to read the whole chapter to you. It's 28 verses. Can you listen fast? All right. I'm going to read real fast. Put your finger on there and follow the words as I do it. You ready? Then verily, the first covenant, which had ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. That's in reference to the tabernacle. For there is a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table uh, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, not the auditorium. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. It doesn't say the Vatican. Which had a golden censer and a golden ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold wherein, the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. Notice what they call the law, God calls the covenant. And over it, in the cherubims of the glory shadowing the mercy seat, which can, we cannot now speak particularly. Now, now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went all the way into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that uh, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while it was the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which we offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. 
which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse watchings, uh, washings and carnal uh, ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. That's not talking about Martin Luther. Now watch this. But Christ, verse number 11, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, by his own blood, he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. This is talking about the tabernacle that's in heaven. Personally, I believe is the throne room of God, but look at it. That is the true tabernacle in heaven. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and of the ashes and the heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from our dead works to serve the living God? <clears throat> and for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For the for a testament is the is in is a force after men are dead. Otherwise it is of no strength at all while the tester liveth. How many of you have a will? Okay. Your will will say, last living will and... Ah, so there is an Old Testament that was pointing to Jesus. He came and gave us the New Testament because he fulfilled it. And it's only enforced because he had to die. My sister-in-law got a letter on Monday stating their condolences that she had died. It was in reference to her husband, but they said she died. And they just uh, obliterated all of her insurances and stuff. And, oh, yeah, it's been a big mess. Now, Paul's things, uh, she couldn't collect his life insurance till he died. And they have proof of his death by a death certificate. It's t that's the same thing here. The Old Testament wasn't negated, but it wasn't in force until the testator came and died. That's why he gave us a new Testament. The others were a picture of what was to come. He fulfilled it in force. Look at verse uh, 18. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For in Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law. He took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people. The book. That's the word of God. Sprinkled with blood. Don't mess with the book. Amen. Saying this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. That's why we shouldn't take the songs about the blood out of the songbook. Verse 21. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of Sin. Did it say anything about Mary in here? Nope. Did it say anything about joining the Catholic Church in here? Nope. Huh. 
It was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he have often suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Welcome to the gospel of God. Now, I've got to hurry here. Notice that the gospel doesn't involve man's righteousness. Notice that it doesn't involve church membership or baptism notice it doesn't involve anything that man does salvation was made available by jesus christ alone now it doesn't involve speaking in tongues it doesn't involve holy living to prove it whether you were sincere or not i've got five six minutes here we go paul as a servant of god was separated unto the gospel. Look at verse number one again. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. We think of separation only in light of moving away from something. Brother Josh, could you stand up for a moment? Here's what we often think of separation. Here's a lost person in the world, uh, the alphabet soup crowd. <laughs> and we as Christians are to separate just to get away from that. That's not separation. That's a breaking away, but it's not separation. Separation is, here's the world, that's God. And as I get closer to God, I have to leave that to get closer to him. It naturally comes off because as I get closer to him, I look back at that and say, eh, that's not going to help me get there. So I need to keep going this way. No, that's not going to help me. And I go this way. Separation is not about what you're going away from as much as who you're going to. Thank you, Brother Josh. If you would learn, your separation is not about what you're convicted about, but how close to God you get, you wouldn't worry about the things that you have to get rid of. The things that need to change. I believe Christians ought to be on a quest from the day they get saved to get as close to God as they can before they suck their last breath here on earth. There are things that are going to naturally come off to get closer to God. That's being separated unto something. Can I help you? There's a lot of Christians. Uh, rules, rules, rules. All those rules. Can I tell you why? Because all you want, uh, preachers and Christians say, well, you just want me to stay away from these things. 
You just want me to stay away from these things. And we're only telling them to stay away from that and not telling them to get closer to God in the process. We're preaching a break away from, but not a separation unto. I would like you to give up your cigarettes, your booze, the worldly ways, the worldly music, the worldly things. Not just to get away from that, but so that you could draw closer to God. Those are weights that will hold you back. You can't open your Bible with a bottle of wine and suck it down and be drunk and get closer to God. You can't listen to the wrong music, the world's music, and then open your Bible and get closer to God. You can't hear Satan proclaimed as God himself in Hollywood or the music and then say, oh God, I want to get closer to you. No, those things have to go away. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. That's biblical separation. You see, God sees separation as what you are moving toward, not what you're moving away from. There are people in here, you need to move away from lying. You need to move away from bitterness. You need to move away from pride, selfishness. Those sins are just as bad as drunkenness and adultery. <laughs> we are to live separated from the world. 2 Corinthians 6. I have two minutes. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at verse number 14. But be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Why? Why should we not be yoked together with unbelievers? God tells us. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? What concourse hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Look at verse number 17. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing. Why? And I will receive you. It's not a matter of just getting away from, but while you get away from it, it's so that you can get closer to him. I'm glad if you get away from it. I've got a chance to get you turned towards God. But don't think just because you broke away from something that you've accomplished something great. I know people who, they clean up good as a Christian, but they're full of pride and full of prunes. They're Pharisees. Everybody doing okay? Ouch. You don't separate from the world just by moving away from the world. As you separate under the gospel and God, you will naturally have to leave the world behind. I tell people all the time, you don't have to worry about hanging around the wrong crowd. You start saying the right things, living closer to God, the world will separate from you. You don't have to worry about it. <laughs> I was flying to Texas and had my Bible open. I'm sitting there waiting in the plane and I'm working away. Gal sitting across the aisle, probably in her early 30s. I could tell she was nervous as a pregnant cat. And 
I'm working away, working away, working away. And they said, okay, and we were taxiing out. We get to the end of the runway, and I flip my table up that I'd been working on, put my Bible in my lap, got my pen there, got my light on, and I'm still working. And this lady says, sir. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, aren't you worried? I said, about what? She said, about taking off. I said, no. I've done this a lot. Don't you worry. I said, in a second, I'll put my head down, not even though we got up. She said, I'm scared to death. I said, don't you worry about it. I put my head down and kept on working. We're getting ready to come down. Planes, you know, doing this. And she's over there. And I'm still working away. She said, sir. I said, don't you worry. Everything's all right. I said, I'll tell you when we're about to hit the ground. I said, I have to put things up now because when this plane stops, I can't write. I said, if I do, it goes, <laughs> it doesn't work real well. She she said, I'm so glad I'm on a trip with a preacher. I said, how would you know as a preacher? She said, ain't nobody that calm with a Bible. <laughs> I handed her a gospel track. <laughs> we came close. I said, okay, we're getting ready to come down. The plane's going to touch down, and you're going to hear a real loud for about seven or eight seconds. Don't worry. I said, and then you're going to go, and then you're going to do this. I said, everything's going to be fine. About ten seconds later, reverse thrust, and things slow down. You know, everybody's going. (laughs) We stood up, get our luggage after it was time for us to leave. She said, I'm so glad I sat by you. I thought, if that's all it took, God bless her. It's not a matter of what you're moving away from as much as what you're moving toward. Are you separated under the gospel of God? Listen to this statement, and I'll I'll close. Churches not focused on the gospel all move toward the world to be accepted by the world. They want to be sociably acceptable. Churches that have gone away from being separated unto the gospel now are more worldly than the world was 50 years ago. And I'm talking about Baptist, Methodist, you name it. Grace Baptist Church needs to stay focused on getting the gospel out. Being separated unto the gospel so that we do not become like the world. The more you separate yourself to the gospel of God, the more unlike the world you will be, but the closer to God you will get. You cannot be right with God and not be separated to the gospel. I didn't say just believe it. Separated unto it. Giving your life for it. That's what God talks about in the book of Romans. And we are going to dive headlong into this thing and have fun with it. Let's stand with our heads bowed. Our eyes are closed. I wonder, have you grown cold? Have you grown away from the gospel? I'm not talking about that you don't believe it. But are you actively getting the gospel out to anybody?